As we look at gospel family, gospel marriage, gospel parenting, one of our main uh, thrusts and main aims throughout this series is to kill the idea that works of any kind save marriages, okay? That works of any kind, kind would save families, that works of any kind save. As Galatians chapter 3 verse 3 says, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And that the gospel of justification, the gospel, the good news of our sanctification, as we've been studying in the book of Romans, it's not by works. It's not by our deeds that we do. But it's by the works that Jesus has already done. And we see that not only in our salvation, but in our sanctification of our being set apart from the world. Uh, We see that in Romans chapter 7, that whenever we try to go back to works or law or anything that we would create for ourselves to do, anything that we would put upon ourselves, we're going to fail. And the result is condemnation. The result is death. Uh, But then we come to Romans chapter 8, the glorious gospel of grace, that by the Spirit we can have victory and power over sin. By the Spirit we can have a healthy marriage, a, a beautiful, glorious marriage to our wives and to our husbands. We can have an awesome relationship with our kids, and our kids can have an awesome relationship with us. But it's all about grace, and it's all about the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Now, a question that I want to ask you guys that uh, you can write down tonight and you can think about, even throughout the study, is if the world had designed marriage, what would it look like? If the world had designed marriage, what would it look like? And you can think about that, and I'm just going to throw off a few things. One of the things is we would think, and the world would think as they design it, that marriage is ultimately about me being happy. You know, and one of the first people's thoughts is uh, the wedding day, right? Uh, just we put so much money into the wedding day. We put thousands and thousands of dollars into this one, not even whole day, but into a few hours. That Those of you that are married, it was quick, wasn't it? It was there, it was gone, and your money was spent. (laughs) And then 10 years later, you think about how you should have eloped, right? And then spent that money on a house or something like that. But uh, uh, we see that a lot in in the weddings, you know, that marriage is really about me being happy. So I'm going to fork over a lot of cash just for this one day. Marriage is about me getting what I want so often. Uh, Maybe some of you guys think about, I got married, and when I was getting married, uh, I wanted to fulfill my part of the American dream. You know, get my house, get my car, get my white picket fence, and get my little chillins running around with me and my beautiful wife swinging on the porch swing, you know. Uh, And so it's about me being happy and fulfilling my part of the American dream. Um, Some of you gals perhaps thought, you know what, if I could just get married, then I would be provided for. I would be protected. And I could have that family. And over the weeks, we're going to just see some very unrealistic expectations within marriage and unhealthy views. But we're also going to see that the real reason for our marriage is for our own holiness, for one thing. Let's just say one of the real reasons. 
uh, is for our own holiness and marriage is for our sanctification. That when two sinners marry each other, they are face to face with both theirs and the other's depravity. There's a whole lot of confrontation in that, isn't there? A whole lot of confrontation, a whole lot of confession, a whole lot of repentance, much forgiveness, and much, much restoration. Hopefully those things are happening. But in all that, marriage brings about sanctification. And one of the greatest foundations and one of the greatest ends of marriage is that marriage is for worship. Marriage is for the glory of God. Reading a book right now by Tim Savage and putting this series together really reminded me of doing the Doctrine series and how it was just such a learning experience for me that I ended up just quoting a whole bunch of guys, Wayne Grudem and Mark Driscoll, I remember specifically through the Doctrine series. And uh, this might be a lot like that because I'm learning so much as I bring it to you that I'm kind of bringing my teachers to the table with me. So not much of what I bring is Rory material. Um, it's, you know, it's some wise men that I've gleaned from the scriptures uh, from. But um, one of these guys, his name is Tim Savage, and he wrote the book, No Ordinary Marriage. And he just shares his testimony from about 34 years ago. He says, a very short, or 32 years ago, a beautiful young bride and a somewhat overwhelmed groom stood before family and friends and recited their sacred wedding vows. They were perfectly matched, and yet, at least in the mind of overly pensive groom, they were very, they were very different from each other. They were deeply in love, but the husband-to-be wondered whether one day they would awaken to, to discover that their differences were driving them apart. What if they tired of each other? What then? The young groom did not realize that his worries were completely allayed by the words he uh, secretly instructed the jeweler to inscribe inside the wedding band of his bride. The very words which remarkably and unbeknownst to him, his bride had instructed her jeweler to etch inside the ring she presented to him. Later that evening, when at last alone the newlyweds made the startling discovery written inside both rings was the identical prayer together for God's glory. And by the Holy Spirit, may he etch in our wedding bands, uh, in our family uh, tree, you know, in, in our relationships, that we would be together, that we would be united uh, for his glory and worship to him. Piper says, what kind of relationship is this? How are these two people held together? Can they walk away from this relationship can they go from spouse to spouse? Is this relationship rooted in romance, sexual desire, need for companionship, cultural convenience? What is this? What holds this together? And we're going to find tonight that the glory of God is what holds this relationship together. The glory of God is the tie that binds as you may know marriage to be. As you look there in Genesis chapter 2, let's look at verse 18 through 25. Where it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. 
So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. I, Rory, believe that you, Lindsay, are the one God chose for me to be my wife. In the name of Jesus, I vow to love you with a self-sacrificing love, to place your needs above my own, and in every way possible, provide for your spiritual your emotional, and your physical needs before my own. I vow to keep you first in my prayers, first in my heart, first in my life, and to keep myself for you alone as long as we both shall live. I said these vows to Lindsay 10 years ago this Friday night. 10-year anniversary, a whole decade has gone by. And when we said those vows... (laughs) We didn't have much of a clue what they meant. (laughs) And how can anybody really know? I mean, anybody here knew what they were vowing when they got married? Uh, We had done exactly the requirement that we have in this church, the required six weeks of pre-marriage counseling with Jean and Trish Stokes. We read all the little pamphlets, pamphlets, watched DVDs, listened to pastors preach on the subject of marriage, including the subject on sex, which is one of the first ones that we read and listened to. That was a joke. Um, It's not funny. Um, You guys remember that day, a moment of unparalleled joy. As Desiderius Erasmus said, what is more sweet than to live with her whom you are united in body and soul, who talks with you in secret affection, to whom you've committed all your faith and your fortune. What in all nature is lovelier? Nothing is more safe, felicitous, tranquil, pleasant, and lovable than marriage. As Artaxerdeus says, though all couples I've counseled are like counseling the mentally insane, They are characterized with a radical inability to grasp reality. We'll never argue about sex or money or the in-laws. We'll never. Then we pledged till death do us part. It's funny, as Lindsay and I do pre-marriage counseling, we tell people, up until the day of the wedding, you are free to back out of this betrothal. You are free to back out of the engagement. This is the time as we look through the scriptures that you determine, am I ready to be this to my spouse? Am I ready to be a picture of Jesus to the church or a picture of the church to Jesus? You can back out on the day of the wedding while you're standing up at the altar, but after you vow and say I do and make the covenant with your bride or groom, there is no backing out. 
And you guys would laugh if you'd see the faces that we see from these engaged couples. Like we're the crazy ones giving them the option to back out. You don't know how much I love my girl, you know? It's like, well, I know how much you think you love your girl. But you need to have a foundation of, uh, of what Jesus desires from you before marriage. So there's this whole naive complex that becomes a reality and is beaten out on the anvil of human experience. And if you've ever been married for three days, you know that anvil well. Tim Savage says, One of, once the ceremony is over, rather than advance to higher slopes of marital contentment, Couples frequently begin a slow and exorable slide into disappointment and mediocrity. One recent study reveals that nine out of ten marriages are filled with dissatisfaction in every dimension of the relationship. Nine out of ten marriages filled with dissatisfaction in every aspect of the relationship. This is because there is deception among Christian people. That there is such a thing called perfect marriage. Mackenzie, are you listening? There's no such thing as perfect marriage. It's a mirage. What's elusive to you, you think is common among people all throughout the church, all throughout the world, that there's these perfect marriages, but it's a lie. It's fake. It's grasping for the wind. And that is why most Christians have a tremendous interest in the subject of marriage and counseling, buying every form of, of uh, book, DVD, going to seminars, reading the blogs on marriage. And we would think that that's a sign of health, but really it's a sign of disease because we're trying to fix our problems and for the majority of the time, trying to fix those problems outside of the scripture, outside of the word of God. We become discontent with what God has given us and his inspired scriptures. And we're begging counselors to show us a way out. Among the experts, there's a fascination with a paint-by-numbers approach to family living. Some experts ignore the Bible altogether, and others use the Bible out of context and in a way that has very little to do with how the Spirit intended the text to be read. Has this plethora of biblical instruction revolutionized the Christian family in our time as one man said, hardly. Stats show we are in a more perilous state than 30 years ago. The rate of divorce now exceeds those of who are not Christians. No region has a higher divorce rate than the Bible Belt of the United States. We are packing marital advice too lightly, Savage says, ready for instant consumption filled with creative techniques and clever applications, but avoiding the more difficult task, and listen to this, the, avoiding the more difficult task of nurturing unions at the deeper level of the hearts. 
the deeper level of the hearts. We want to use the Bible biblically and regain our grasp of the essential truth of the gospel. If we use the Bible biblically, we'll find that there's not select passage on, passages on marriage. Ephesians 5, we go there so fast. Colossians chapter 3, let's speed over there. 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm there already. But really to have a grasp of the whole of the scriptures, of the meta-narrative of the Bible, of the whole gospel that's unfolded from Genesis to Malachi and Matthew through Revelation. And as Paul Tripp says, we can argue to the degree that every portion of the Bible tells us things about God, about ourselves, about life in this present world, and about the nature of the human struggle and the divine solution. To that degree, Tripp says, every passage in the Bible is a marriage passage. So what about when we're in Romans chapter 9? What about when we're in Romans chapter 10? What about when we're in Romans chapter 1? There are portions, if not all, of the gospel revealed to us in every scripture, every verse, every jot and every tittle. We either see man's fallen condition and his fallen state outside of shalom, or we see it before that when it was in shalom, or we see God on his path of redeeming it through his son, Jesus Christ, and we say, you know what? That Jesus is the same Jesus that rose from the dead. And if that Jesus rose from the dead, then certainly he can redeem our marriage that seems so on the brink of mortality. And so before we look at what the Christian family does, come on, Rory, give me some news. Give me some practical things. We want to look very carefully at what the Christian family is. What the Christian family is. What constitutes the true source of the value of the family as there's been such a debate among our nation of what is marriage really? How do you define marriage? Is it between a man and a woman? A man and a man? Is it just best friends that want to cohabitate for the rest of their life? What constitute family values? What makes family, what makes marriage significant? Well, tonight we're going to look at that it's the creation of God in his sovereignty. Marriage is the sovereign creation of the Lord God. And there's always got to be a starting point of true marriage. And you need to know right now that marriage did not begin with man, man instituting it, man wanting to hook up with woman, <laughs> nor did marriage begin with a woman. I need a provider, so we're going to create this promise, you know, we're going to pinky swear to one another. But rather, marriage began with God. It wasn't designed by an old school sociologist or by a male-dominated culture to, seeking to oppress women like so many people believe. But it was a creation from the Lord God in the very beginning passages of Scripture. John Piper says that the most foundational thing we see from the Scripture about marriage is that it's God's doing. 
It's God's design. And so tonight as we lay out, you know, we've dumped the concrete and we're, you know, troweling it out and we're bull floating it and we're laying the foundation of this family series. We want to see that that foundation is God's doing. God did it. God created marriage. But we also catch a glimpse at the highest point of the building, the highest point, the glory, the ultimate thing. And that is to see from the Bible that marriage is for God's glory. Okay? So marriage is God's doing and for God's glory. And because of that, he never gives man sovereignty. He never gives man permission to redefine marriage or to discard it in a way that would suit us or fit our culture. Marriage actually exists ultimately not for us, not for you, not for your happiness, not for your provision, not for your protection, but for his glory. And until you and I understand marriage within that context that it's all about Jesus, our marriages are going to walk with a limp. Our marriages are going to have viruses. They're going to be unhealthy. They're going to be unhappy. Until you understand that everything about your home is for him and for his glory, your marriage will be diseased. Your relationship with your kids will be wanting. Marriage can be rewarding. But here is the crucial, crucial qualification. Such lofty ideals, Savage says, are by no means automatically realized. Husbands and wives must exercise vigilance. They must be committed to work for this prize. In particular, they must cling tenaciously to the one piece of equipment that guarantees a safe ascent to the marital summit. Do you guys want to go there? You want to take the ascent to the marital summit? They must fasten themselves to the rope that binds them together as one. And what is this rope? What is this tie that binds? It is the glory of God. When husbands and wives cling firmly to the lifeline of God's glory and do so with the resolve appropriate to the importance of their joint expedition, the unbridled optimism of the wedding will be confirmed a hundred times over by an upward ascent that surpasses even their loftiest expectations. Now when you see bad marriages, when you see marriages that are struggling, when your marriage is struggling, ask yourself, is our sole goal within our home the glory of God? Is our desire in the vehicles that we have, in the size of TV that we have, you know, and how many kids that we're even going to have, and the way I communicate with her, and the way I love him, and the way I romance my wife, is it all for the glory of God? Or is it for self, selfish purposes? So quickly we default to self. Leslie Newbine says, uh, he's a uh, pope, or excuse me, I'm sorry, he's a bishop. 
known as Bishop Leslie Newbine. He says, in a mutual relationship between two human beings, we know that it can be sustained only if both acknowledge something that has authority over them and if each trusts the other to acknowledge this. A healthy marriage is going to have not one, but both of the people all out with reckless abandon pursuing the glory of the one that created them. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the account of creation. And all throughout, woven within the text, we see God exercising his sovereignty. God says, let there be light. And God saw that the light was good. So he took pleasure from that light. He says, it's good. I like it. That's exactly how I meant for it to be. Well, then in verses 9 and 10, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. And so it was. And God called the dry land earth. He gathered together the waters. He called them seas. And God saw that it was In verses 11 through 12, God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields forth fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth grass, the uh, herb yields the seed according to its kind, the tree that yields fruit, the seed in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 16, then God made two great lights. The greater light ruled the day, the lesser light ruled the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Verse 20, God says, let the waters abound with abundance of living creatures. Let birds fly above the uh, and the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So great sea creatures and every living thing that moved were caused to be in the waters, they abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird, according to its kind, God saw that it was good. Verse 24, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind, cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. And so there's some poetry behind it. There's some repetition here, being the key to knowledge. God would speak something forth, It would be good. He would be delighted in it. It was just as he intended it. And then we see verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1. God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning was the sixth day. So the pinnacle of creation has this great pomp, has this great praise. You can almost hear the bands playing. Before he creates it, he shows his consideration in it, in making it. But then he comes to a place where he creates man. And in his creation of man, God almost jeopardizes his glory in declaring that he would share his image with this created thing, man. There's going to be this special creation and it's going to share my image and I'm going to create him last and he's going to be the best out of all the creation 
And so verses 21 through 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so as we look through the poetry of God created and it was good, God created and it was good, God created and it was good, and then at the end there in verse 31, God created and it was very good, something happened to make what was good extra specially good. And it was when God had created man. We have this broad view of God's creation, male and female, created in his image, carrying out the creation mandate that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that lived on the earth. To the eyes of the maker, whose mark of glory had been left on every cell in a billion galaxies, creation was especially good. Good because it trumpets in his every dimension the radiance of his glory. Creation, it seems, could not be better, Savage states. But then that one deficiency of creation is listed. Anyone who'd been reading the first two chapters of Genesis so far would be stunned to hear, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, but it's not good. When was it not good? The answer is that there was still one more step of creation. A step that would provide the lofty capstone of the creator's handiwork and show a greater outburst of his divine glory. Here's the deficiency. It is not good that... Good job, you guys know your Bibles. It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. Now, this is not saying that it's a bad idea to be single. There's significance in singleness. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us it's not a less valuable estate, but it's rather a high estate, Paul tells us. You can focus on the things of the Lord and how you might serve the Lord rather than how you might serve your spouse. And so there is a benefit to that. Jesus was the ultimate man and he was single. And then we also see in the new heaven and the new earth that we won't be married. All of our affections are going to be given over to the Lord. What he's saying is here that it's not a good idea, it's not good for a person to be solitary, for them to be alone. And marriage is just one of the ways of addressing this. What's another way? Church, community, right? Friendships. If you're a single person, it's so that you might serve, right? So that you might pour out men with men, women with women, training them up, discipling them, laying your life down for the kingdom. 
Now, when God looks at, at Adam and says, it's not good that man should be alone, keep in mind, and it's kind of an interesting thought, that at this point, Adam didn't know that he was single. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we think, totally, we think Adam totally thinks that, but he's just thinking, this is awesome. This is the way it's supposed to be, you know? It's like uh, bachelor's weekend all eternity long. But Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, this bachelor, right after God says it's not good for you to be alone, it says that out of the ground, out of the, ground the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Isn't that interesting? It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. And then he starts making all these animals and parading these animals in front of him. And and Adam gives names, uh, phylum, genome, and species, you know, to all of these animals as they walk by, whether they're birds or creature, you know, creatures or walking on their belly, crawling on their belly. But in all of them, Adam walked away disappointed. He hadn't found anybody fitting for him. God takes Adam through this zoological exercise. And in a dominion mandate, he names all of the animals. And that probably took a while. He finds that no one corresponds to him. No one is fitting for him. A man named Ray Ortland said that God did not immediately create this helper. Instead, God paraded the animals before the man for him to name them. Why? Because the man did not yet see the problem of his aloneness. And so God translated the man's objective aloneness into a feeling of personal loneliness by setting him to his task. In serving God, the man encountered his own need. This is so because the task of naming the animals entailed more than slapping an arbitrary label on each beast. The task required the man to consider each animal thoughtfully so that its name was appropriate to its particular nature. Out of this exercise, it began to dawn on the man that there was no creature in the garden that shared his nature. No one that had a similar name to him. I kind of added that part. Sorry, Ray. Ray goes on to skate. To skate. Ray the skater. He discovered not only his own unique superiority over the beasts, which the privilege of naming them itself implied, he also discovered his own solitude in the world. We may surmise that an aching longing welled up within the man for companionship of another creature on this level. And so what did God do immediately following? In Genesis uh, 2.21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. As Piper says, marriage is God's doing because he personally took the dignity of being the first father to give away the bride. 
God's doing is the foundation of marriage. And we see that on so many different levels. And one level right here is this giving away of the bride. And as the bride is given away down the aisle, Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And Ray Ortland continues, and so God performs the first surgical operation. Imagine the scene. As the last of the beast plods off with its new name, the man turns away with a trace of perplexity and sorrow in his eyes. God says, son, I want you to lie down. Now close your eyes and sleep. The man falls into a deep slumber. The creator goes to work, opening the man's side, removing a rib, closing the wound, and building the woman. There she, uh, yeah, there she stands, perfectly gorgeous and uniquely suited for the man's need. The Lord says to her daughter, I want you to go stand over there. I'll come for you in a moment. She obeys. Then God touches the man and says, wake up now, son. I have one last creature for you to name. I'd like to know what you think of this one. God leads Eve over to Adam, who greets her with rhapsodic relief. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The first recorded words out of a human being's mouth who'd been made in the image of God was this poetic praise to the creator. What does this praise express? The joy of the first man receiving the gift of the first woman This creature alone, Father, out of all the others, this one at last meets my need for a companion. She alone is my equal, my very flesh. I identify with her. I love her. I will call her woman, for she came out of man. This man perceives the woman not as his rival, but as his partner, not as a threat because of her equality with himself, but as the only one capable of fulfilling the longing within. Adam's poetry here captures Eve's equality to him, but also her distinction from him. As he says, she shall be called Isha, for she has been taken out of Ish. He gave her a name that was comparable to him. This new creature that God created to be equal with him, having a similar name, but also being distinct from him. In her equality, he praises God and says, Lord, she's from my body. She's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She has my rib. We go together. She's comparable to him. She's fitting for him, maybe your translation says, or compatible. But we also have a distinction. We also have a difference in them. In the Adam operation, there was this distinct function in relationship to her. Equality, yes. Adam and Eve, in every way, were spiritual equals. In one way, Eve was an image bearer of God as well. She was fitting and comparable to Adam, which means literally she stood face to face with Adam. It wasn't a giraffe standing face to face to Adam. 
nor was it a porcupine. It was Isha, standing face to face with Ish. They were uh, equally stressed there in that she was created from Adam. But she had a distinct function in that she was to be a helpmate for him. In 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, we see that man is not from woman, but woman is from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. There's this distinct role in the creation as well as function. And so why do we spend the attention on this? One thing that we want to learn right off the bat is that we appreciate God's division of labor and that he, she will be a helper to him. There will be a role within that relationship. And all of this was established prior to any introduction of sin within the earth. Any expression of leadership or submission is not the consequences of the fall. Roles and submission are within the Trinity themselves. Jesus would defer to the Father. He would pray to the Father and he would say, Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. These roles of submission within the Godhead. Any difficulty within areas of leadership and submission are consequences of the fall. Leadership itself is not the problem. Abusive leadership is the problem. And so within Genesis, within this creation account of Adam and Eve, Genesis is not giving us just a rebuttal to Darwinism, but it's laying out the standard, the paradigm of what relationships are to be, specifically the relationship between a husband and a wife. Okay, Because of the account of Adam and Eve, homosexuality is excluded. Okay, Adam could not find a suitable helper among the animals, and so bestiality is excluded. Because God created just one woman for Adam, Monogamy is the original intention of God. As originally designed, Adam and Eve are the standard for marriage. And the creator has creator rights to dictate that standard. He did it here in Moses' account of the Genesis. There's a Puritan man named Matthew Henry. Some of you know him. He's very well known. His commentaries are all over the place. Matthew Henry says this in his commentary. He says, The woman was made out of the rib of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over Adam, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Adam says, this one corresponds to me more than any of those other creatures that I just passed by, that I just named. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I shall call her woe man. 
And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we see within the account, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleave or hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus quotes this in Matthew 19 and says that God says this. Even though they're in the Genesis account, it appears to be Moses saying it. So Jesus is saying through the inspiration of the scriptures that God is declaring that first of all, a man needs to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. You do not have a marriage until that severance takes place. Many of you would do well to go back to that day you got married and perhaps draw the line a little deeper into the sand. There was this severing on your marriage day of one of the strongest human bonds that a relationship can have. But your new relationship demands a higher human level of loyalty, even above and beyond that of a mother or a father to their son or daughter. Then they're to be joined to their wife, cleave and hold on to the wife. What these words point to is that marriage is a sacred covenant rooted in covenantal commitments that stands against any storm as long as you both shall live. This cleaving, this joining, this gluing together is not to be separated. As Ephesians 5.31 says, for this reason, he's quoting, Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 2, quoting Moses. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Within this consummated act of oneness, this one flesh takes place, and it's all a picture of the union that takes place when we are born again, and the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. We are united with Christ, and we enter into the most deep relationship, even beyond humanly possible, with our God, once again, reconciled with our Creator, you see, in creation, God made two out of one. Took the rib of Adam, made Eve, made two out of one. But in marriage, God makes one out of two. Just like in our salvation. As Jesus would say, that they would be in me as I am in you. Piper again says, just as it was God who took Woman from the flesh of man, it is God who in each marriage ordains and performs a uniting called one flesh that is not in man's power to destroy. This is implicit here in Genesis 2.24, but Jesus makes it explicit in Mark chapter 10 when he quotes Moses and adds a comment that explodes like thunder in the glory of his marriage, the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus declares that within this union, within this holding fast, within this cleaving, within this joining, man 
is not to separate. This joining, this becoming one flesh is the giving up of oneself to the shared existence to the spouse. Did you hear that? It's the giving up of yourself. We so often let self rule and reign within our homes. Two people that are brought together for this mutual love and encouragement and relationship and support and companionship. Even for procreation and to have kids, it's all secondary. On that day that you were married, on that day that you even consummated the the marriage through sexual intercourse, that picture of Ephesians chapter 5 of two becoming one flesh, the mystery of Christ in the church is brought to the forefront. Of course, God brought Eve to Adam. But how do I know? I'm starting to doubt that God brought my wife to me. How do I know that I made the right choice? How do I know that my wife is the right one? Adam seemed to have it kind of easy. And the answer is very simple. If you're married to her, then God brought her to you. It's that simple. You're married to her. You've made the covenant. And now there's this picture of Christ in the church, a covenant that will never die. Because it's been bought, sealed, delivered, all that stuff in the blood of Jesus. When the Pharisees tested Jesus in Matthew 19, they asked in testing him, they says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? He answers and says, haven't you read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. There should be no separating. The original Greek here means stop separating. (laughs) Stop separating. Stop doing it. This is man. It's man's wisdom. It's the flesh. The flesh ends in death. Stop separating. Function in grace. Function in humility. Function in tying to self. Function in the power of the Holy Spirit. When a couple speaks their vows and consummate their vows with a sexual union, it's not man or woman or pastor or parent who is the main actor in the wedding. God is. God joins a husband and a wife into a one flesh union. God does that. The world doesn't know this. And that's one of the reasons why marriage is treated so casually and why Christians even act like they don't know the depths and the riches of the marriage union. It's one of the reasons marriage isn't seen within the church as the wonder that it is. Because God is not the main focus of the wedding. He's not the main actor. He's not the main character. The groom is in his tux. The band is with their fancy music. The cute little kids walking down with the flowers in the ring. They're the focal point. The pastor with his witty little clever comments, and he's just so hilarious most of the time. He is not the main focal point. It's God. 
It's the designer of the union. He's the foundation of the home. He's the foundation of the marriage. Just about to finish up here. Marriage is the sovereign creation of the Lord God. And if it was human, we could treat it however we wanted. We could discard it without any hesitation whatsoever. Like the late Betty Friedan said, marriage has existed for the benefit of men. It's been a legally sanctioned method of control over women. We must work to destroy it. The end of the institution of marriage is a necessary condition for the liberation of women. Therefore, it is important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and not to live individually with men. All of history must be rewritten in terms of oppression of women. We must go back to ancient female religion like witchcraft. This is written from the Declaration of Feminism, November 1971, the late Betty Friedan. Or Gloria Steinem who said, for the sake of those who wish to live in equal partnership, we have to abolish and reform the institution of legal marriage. You know, if marriage was just a man's invention, or the invention of a sociologist, we could switch it, we could change it, we could rearrange it. But it's the sovereign design of the creator of the universe out of billions and zillions of atoms and particles and, you know, bugs and worms and creepy crawly things and flying majestic animals and fish that weigh, you know, the size of your house, all that stuff. He said, you know what? It's not good that man would be alone. I'm going to make this specific helper comparable to him, compatible with him, fitting to him. And they will be joined together. They will become one flesh. In the words of Jesus, what God has joined together, let not man separate. We cannot approach marriage sociologically, but theologically. And that's going to be our method throughout this whole adventure, you know, through gospel family. It's to be theologians and to pull out the text and to look at all the scriptures that everything being about God is going to give us a full, beautiful, dynamic, intricate picture of what our marriages should look like. And by the grace of God and by the spirit of God and by the power of God, he will conform our marriages to be biblical Genesis chapter 2 marriages. Amen? So in the foundation, marriage is the doing of God. And next week we will look at beyond the foundation, we're going to look at the ultimate, that marriage is the display of God. It's about the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we dig into your word, as we pull it apart, as we just chew on it like just just a delectable morsel, Lord, Lord, we just realize our fault, our sin, how we've bought into the world, how we've considered marriage to be something that man has created or man has shaped, man has formed it. Lord, we've bought into thinking that we could switch it and change it and and make it something that will satisfy our flesh and please self more. And Lord, that's sin. It's sin, God. We thank you for your design of marriage. 
that out of all the beasts of the field and birds of the air, there is nothing comparable to us. And so you in your love, you created something that was once removed from the earth. As Matthew Henry says, we as men were formed from the dust of the earth, but women were formed from the rib of us, once removed from the earth. Lord, there's just this beautiful purity about your creation, Lord, about our wives. And Lord, we just pray that as we examine your splendor and your design, Lord, that we would become more and more worshipers of yours. Lord, we just want to confess the sins of our world, of our nation, of our culture, even sins within our church, even sins within this room where we're making marriage to be something that is self-serving. God, forgive us. Lord, I pray that you would give us minds that would just again explore the depths of God and, and where we've just camped out on cliche phraseology of marriage and, and just camping out even in certain biblical texts, Lord, that are amazing and shed so much light that, Lord, you would help us as a church to go just in depth through the texts of even Genesis and to just see your plan. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful portrait that you've given us of the relationship between Christ and the church and Lord, you being the groom and serving the, the bride, the church and laying your life down for the church and presenting us pure and washing us with the water of the word and Lord, not loving yourself but laying yourself, your life down for the bride. And Lord, if anyone is in this place and They've never gone into this covenant with you. They've never received this covenant of marriage in the sense that they could be saved. They could be married to you, God. They could be part of the covenant of marriage that forgives sin, takes out the hard heart, replaces it with a soft heart that can know you. Lord, I pray that they would just yield and respond to you today. They would let that ultimate, true, and better union take place in their hearts, God. If you would call them tonight, if you would beckon them, don't let them harden their hearts. Let them respond, and may there be a marriage, even right here, right now in this room, between these new Christians and the groom of Jesus. Pray for our church as we go through this series, Lord. We know there are hurting marriages. We know that there's healthy marriages. We know that there's marriages that look good on the outside, but on the inside, they're just dead men's bones. They're cancerous, Lord, and they don't even know it yet. But in their self-righteousness and in their works-based health, Lord, it's just putrefying. Lord God, would you just breathe new life of your grace and of your mercy into the marriages, into the families, when we dig into family, into parenting and kids. And Lord, you do it, God. Do a work that could only be attributed to the awesome spirit of God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening and God bless.